Welcome to Practical Christian Living. There's a point of faith where you say, I want to invite Christ into my heart and I want to begin to live for Him. And if you are sincere and you are honest and God can tell these kind of things, right? You can't fool God. People can be fooled, but God can't. If you are sincere and honest, when you invite Jesus in, then you can be saved. And part of that took place on the cross, that your sins were placed upon Jesus on the cross. Do we really realize that as believers, paradise awaits us? If you do not have that hope and assurance, please stay with us for Practical Christian Living. You need to know there is a God who loves you, even though you are a sinner. No matter what you've done or what terrible sin you may be involved in, you are exactly who Jesus came for. And He waits for you to accept His free gift of grace, forgiveness, and salvation today. With more from John 19, 17-37, here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. It goes on to say then, and for my clothing they cast lots, therefore the soldiers did these things. The soldiers did these things because they had to fulfill scripture. God was using Pilate to put this plaque above Jesus' head that he was king of the Jews, using the soldiers to fulfill passages. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cloopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciple whom he loved standing by, this is John. John refers to himself throughout the book of John as the disciple Jesus loved. And he's the only one of the disciples that made it to the cross. And he's the youngest of the disciples. And he's standing there with Mary, the mother of Jesus, who has seen her son crucified. And he says to her, he says, woman, behold your son. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciple whom Jesus saw standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. Now here we get to the sayings of Jesus from the cross. There are seven things that Jesus said from the cross. And I think that each one of those statements helps us to understand what's happening on the cross. I want to show you seven scriptures here in a few minutes about what was taking place on the cross. But these seven things Jesus said, they, of course they are significant. Of course they are meaningful. And they help us to understand the cross. The first thing, I'm going to give them to you um, in kind of an order here. The first one is, Father, forgive them. When they took Jesus out, the, Jesus said, no man takes my life from, from me, but I lay it down. I believe that Jesus stretched out his hands on that cross. They didn't have to fight him to stretch out his hands to drive the nails in. And, and from that time, the Bible says that he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. To the men who were crucifying him, he began to pray. And in the Greek, it's in the continual, meaning he prayed it over and over again. I'm sure this detachment of men had, had crucified many people. And I'm sure they heard all kinds of things. I'm sure that they had been begged. They had been begged by people to let him go. They'd been bribed to let him go. I have some money. I can pay you. Just let me go. Just don't do this. There's anything, screaming, hollering, cussing, all kinds of things. But never had they had someone say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And of course, this speaks of what the cross is all about. The Bible says that Jesus' blood paid for the sins of 
all the world. Not just for the elect, not just for people who would end up being saved, so that anyone who, anyone who would come to Christ could be saved, anyone at all, because he went to the cross in order to give forgiveness. And if he can crucify the very men that are driving nails through his flesh and into that tree, then he can forgive you and he can forgive me and he can forgive anyone who could come to him. The second statement upon the cross was one of the thieves that was crucified with him. Said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. How, how did that thief know that there was, that he had a kingdom? Because there was a plaque above Jesus' head that said King of the Jews. Maybe while they were being crucified, he noticed it. And so there on the cross, he said, remember me when you come into the kingdom. And of course, Jesus said, I tell you the truth today, you will be with me in paradise. I love that Jesus calls heaven paradise. You and I will never find paradise here on earth, but we are going to paradise. Adam and Eve were created and they were placed in paradise, the Garden of Eden. And we know that we are going to the Garden of God for all of eternity. And he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Oh, and by the way, of course, you have a salvation on the cross, right? You actually have an example of someone who is being saved on the cross, someone who didn't know God, who asked him that he would be remembered and then who was invited into all of eternity. So we have an example on the cross of how you are saved. You are saved by receiving him. You are saved when you say something like, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Lord, I want you in my life. There's no magic words. I have a prayer that I lead people to Christ with that I've prayed for literally longer than 35 years. It's the same prayer that I used to pray when I was with my kids in the youth group when I was a youth pastor. A long time. Nothing magic about that prayer. There's a point of faith where you say, I want to invite Christ into my heart and I want to begin to live for him. And if you are sincere and you are honest and God can tell these kind of things, right? You can't fool God. People can be fooled, but God can't. If you are sincere and honest, when you invite Jesus in, then you can be saved. And part of that took place on the cross that your sins were placed upon Jesus on the cross. And so there's an example of getting saved by a man who dies on the cross. The third thing Jesus said was, woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. And here Jesus was taking care of the people he loved. He was taking care of his mother, whom he loved. And Jesus is on the cross dying for us because he's taking care of people whom he loves. I want to quote this passage to you in a little while, but the Bible says that Jesus demonstrated his love for you that while you were still a sinner, he died on the cross for you. What was he doing on the cross? He was taking care of the people he loved. And that includes you and me. And he didn't die for us because we were worthy of it, because he died for you on your worst day. He died for you while you were still in your sins. He didn't die for you on your best day. You might like to take a day and say, Lord, I'd like to give you this day. It's the best day that I ever lived. Would you save me because of that day? It's still not good enough. You, you have been saved by Christ in the midst of your sin. And Jesus was taking care of, on, from the cross, the woman that he loved, and he takes care of us upon the cross. Jesus had said, and we think this is right at, at when the darkness fell on the earth, right at, at noon, he was crucified at night in the morning, was on the cross until he was three, but there was a great darkness that fell over the earth. And Jesus cried out, fulfilling Psalms 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we wonder why Jesus cried out this way. 
He knew what was happening. He understood what was going on. He knew that his life was being a sacrifice. But don't forget that Jesus was 100% human, 100% God. He wasn't 50% human and 50% God. He was 100% God. He was always the son of the God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all making up God. He was always 100% God. And he was 100% human, which means that when he was scourged, which was a brutal, something they would do that was brutal before they crucified someone, and then nailing him to the cross and the loss of blood and the, the excruciating pain that he had on the cross, I think he literally went into shock. I think that's the answer to the beginning of Psalms 22. It opens up, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he says, why are you so far from hearing me? I cry out to you in the daytime. You don't hear me. I cry out to you at the nighttime. And remember, there was daytime and nighttime on the cross, a supernatural darkness that hit at noon. And I think that there, Jesus had, when, when all sin was put upon him and at the darkest moment, he was wondering, why have you turned from me? Because he went into shock being 100% man. He would have gone into shock just as you and I would have gone into shock. Shock is the body's way of trying to deal with something that is uncopable, that you can't handle. And he would have went into it. And I believe that's what was happening there. And it speaks of the great weight that was placed upon him, not just the pain of the cross, but the fact that our sins were placed upon him. The Bible says in Corinthians that he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God I'm quoting all the passages I want to give you here in a few minutes. And so it, it speaks to us of him being separated from God as his father. All right, I need to use those terms. The son being separated from the father for the first time ever so that we could never be separated from the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus said upon the cross, I thirst. This speaks of the thirst that we have in humanity. We're missing something. We're lacking something. Without Christ, we have a thirst in our lives. Jesus said, are any of you thirsty? Then come unto me and drink, and out of you will gush torrents of living water. He became thirsty on the cross that he would satisfy the thirst of the soul of men and women, that we have to have that in our lives. Billy Graham used to say, there's a God-shaped hole inside of every one of us, and only God could fill it. Only Jesus can satisfy that thirst that we have. There will always be an emptiness. There will always be something that we are searching for until we invite Christ in completely and surrender totally to him. If you are in despair, if you are in depression, if you don't know where to go, if you find yourself at the end and struggling, the answer is surrendering everything to Jesus, inviting him in completely, letting him satisfy that thirst of the emptiness that is inside your life as you surrender it all to him. He then said, his sixth statement, it is finished. Totelestai. What was finished? Salvation. The work of salvation had been finished. God had done what needed to be done so that all of mankind could be saved. And again, that would include the people of Israel. It would include the nations of the world. It would include people all around the world. And it would include people who had not been born. And it would include people that had been born. The Bible says of Abraham that God credited to him righteousness. He was saved on credit. How about that for a concept? 
Abraham was saved on credit so that when Jesus died on the cross, it was the righteousness of Jesus that saved Abraham. And he was saved when he believed what God said to him. And so when we believe in him today, when we believe what Jesus said and what he's done for us in order to give us eternity, then we are saved. And the great work of the cross was finished at that moment. All of the wrath and all of the judgment and all of the sin of all of mankind who would ever exist in all of the world was laid upon him at that one moment in that one time. And he finally cried out, it is finished. Speaking of that great work that he did on the cross. And finally, he said, Father, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. His body would be taken down from the cross. Joseph of Arimathea, one of the Sanhedrin, and Nicodemus, another one of the Sanhedrin, would take the body of Jesus, quickly prepare it for burial because the Passover Sabbath was the next day. And then they buried him quickly and his body lay in that tomb until early Sunday morning when he would be, his spirit would be reunited with his body. And this speaks to all of us of our resurrection one day. That one day, if, if Christ does not come back soon, then our spirits will be separated from our bodies. And then we will be reunited with our bodies. Maybe you say, well, I don't want to be reunited with this body. <laughs> well, then I have good news for you. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery, Paul wrote. We will not all sleep, but some of us will be changed in a moment and a twinkling of an eye, and this corruptible will put on incorruptible. This mortality will put on immortality, and we will be with the Lord so that there will be a change. We're told that those who fall asleep in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, those who fall asleep will by no means proceed, those of us who are alive and remain but they will meet the Lord in the air. Their bodies will literally meet the Lord in the air. What about people who were burned? What about people who fell overboard and were eaten by fish? What about people who were buried under an apple tree and their body was decomposed into the tree and people ate it in the apples? How's God gonna figure all that out? That's why he's God and you're not. I, I love these kind of objections that people bring up, forgetting that God is all powerful and that God is able to reunite you with your body, and that will happen with Jesus. And he committed his spirit into his hands, and this speaks of him making that way for us. It's no accident that when Stephen was being stoned, the first martyr of the church, that he, he looked up, and the Bible says, his face being like the face of an angel, and he said, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. He's, or the Son of God, standing by the right hand of the Father. Jesus went to sit by the right hand of the Father, by the way. He stood up to meet Stephen, the first martyr, as he went into heaven. And he said, Lord, don't hold this in account to these people. He prayed for the people who were stoning him, just like Jesus did on the cross. And then Stephen said, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Jesus committed his spirit to the Lord on the cross so that every one of us on that moment that we are fading from this world and into eternity, we would be able to say, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And there is a great confidence when a, when a Christian dies. There's a great peace when a Christian dies, by the way. When you can trust Christ and you, are, you know that you're going into heaven, and the, the closer someone gets to that, 
the more they turn from the things of this world into the things of eternity and set their mind and heart upon him. And if the Lord doesn't come back in my lifetime, there will come the time when I will commit my spirit into his hands. If I have time to say it. I've told you before, I want to go really quick. <laughs> we'll see if God grants that or not. But he did it upon the cross so that we could do it as well. Now let's read a little bit more of this and then I want to finally come to the seven different things about the cross. Uh, verse 28. But after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled it with sour wine and put it in hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit and Jesus uh, and Jesus' side is, oh, and he gave up his spirit. Verse 31, therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross for the Sabbath, the preparation day. I, I don't want to get into something else that's really complicated. I know I already did that with the cross and the stake and all of those things, but there were two different days that two different groups kept Passover. We're told this by Flavius Josephus. He tells us that the Judeans kept it on, in one day, that is those from Jerusalem and around Jerusalem kept the Passover on one day and those who were in the Galilee kept it on another day. At some point, I'll tell you why there's a difference between the two, but it also helped out with the number of lambs that were being killed so that Jesus kept Passover with his disciples, but Passover was also kept the next day by those who were from Jerusalem and Jesus literally died at the time that sheep, lambs, were being killed for the Passover. Our Passover lamb died when Passover lambs were, were being killed. It says, for the Sabbath was the high day, that is, it was a, it was a holy Sabbath or a, a Passover Sabbath. Then the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows he is telling the truth so that you may believe. In other words, John says, I saw these things. I saw them stab the spear in and I saw blood and water come out. Then it says, for these things were done that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones were broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look upon him who they have pierced. Those two scriptures are Psalms 34, 20. That is that not one of his bones shall be broken. And Zechariah 12, 10, which says that God will pour out a spirit of mercy and grace on Jerusalem and they will look upon him who they have pierced. Now, let me quickly go over the things that I have that happened on the cross. We've already talked about some of them. Let me give you seven passages. John 1.29 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God was dying at the same time the lambs were dying. In Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. The life I live now, I live unto him who gave himself for me. Jesus gave himself for us. Romans 3.26 says, that he might be just and justifier to the one who has faith in Jesus. This speaks of God being a judge and being just. He is just to forgive your sins because all of the wrath and all of the judgment that is pointed towards mankind of all time was poured out upon his son on the cross. And so he is just and he is the justifier. 
He couldn't just randomly forgive sins. There are people who will say, well, you can just randomly forgive someone without killing your dog to forgive them. It's an actual analogy they use to talk about the lack of the power of the cross. But those who believe such a thing believe it is only love that drove him to the cross. Yes, it's love, and I'll read that in just a moment. But it is also the wrath and the judgment of God that had to be satisfied on the cross. And when we understand that, there had to be the death of someone who was innocent, innocent and perfect in order to make God just and the justifier. Without that, there would be no freedom for us. There would be no eternity. Romans 5, 8 says he demonstrated his love for us, that we, we were still sinners. He died on the cross. So his wrath was being poured out upon Christ because of the great love that he had for us, that his wrath wouldn't be poured out on us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. It is the shedding of the blood of Jesus that forgives our sins. It isn't him being scourged. It isn't him suffering before the cross. It isn't him dying and going to hell and suffering. These are all things that cults say they are wrong. It was his death on the cross and the shedding of blood on the cross that caused our sins to be forgiven. The Bible says it clearly. Colossians 2.13 says, canceling the record of debt that stood against us and nailed it to the cross. God has canceled your debt. You owed a debt, someone said. You couldn't pay. He paid a debt he couldn't owe, and it was nailed to the cross. With that said, would you stand with me? Let's pray together, prepare our hearts for communion. How's that for wrapping up a text quickly? I realize how long I took. Father, we want to thank you that we can study your word, that we can get ready for communion. We give ourselves to you, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. And if you would, go ahead and get your communion stuff ready. All right. Everybody ready? You guys are getting good at it now. All right. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you as we have taken time to look at the cross. We want to thank you for, the, for what was done there, that your wrath was satisfied that your judgment was met, that you became both just and justifier at the same time, and that you are faithful and just to forgive our sins. We are so grateful. And we remember that you gave us this command, what we're doing now in taking communion, when you said, do this in remembrance of me, and you gave us the cup of your new covenant, the blood that was shed for our sins, that we are no longer bound to the law, but set free from the law in the new covenant that we have with you. And now together as a body, all those online as well, we take this bread and we eat it. Remembering the work that you did on the cross for us, that our sins could be forgiven. And Lord, now we take the cup of the new covenant. We remember the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins on the cross and that you redeemed us there, you ransomed us, you paid the price, the propitiation, the only sacrifice that could do it, you gave on that cross for us. And we're so grateful as we take this again as a group to, together. And we thank you that we can partake of communion. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. 
Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.